Hello and welcome to the Cultural Peeps podcast. My name is Ian Wielden and I'm a lecturer in the School of Arts and Cultures at Newcastle University. This series is part of an ongoing project which explores different career pathways across the museum, gallery, heritage and wider cultural sectors. I really want this series to do three things. The first is to help early career professionals understand the huge range of ever-changing job profiles that now exist. The second aim is to help those professionals interpret job titles in the context of different venues and organisations. Sometimes jobs with the same title can be radically different depending on the organisation. The third aim is to help listeners understand that the people that make up any field of work are all human and that in turn plays a significant part in their unfolding career pathway and decision-making processes. A few caveats. The recordings that form the basis for the podcasts aren't technically perfect. They're often grabbed in busy offices and in between meetings, so you can frequently hear the everyday world of work whirring on in the background. Just a final note, these podcasts are edited down from longer conversations, but I've tried to keep in as much of the original content as possible. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Cultural Peeps podcast. I'm in Southwark Park in central London, which is where I recorded today's conversation with Jude Carlton. Jude is the director of Southwark Galleries. Uh, Southwark Galleries, formerly known as CGP London, was founded in 1984 by the Bermondsey Artist Group. And since its conception, they've commissioned and presented over 160 free exhibitions by emerging and established British and international artists. This recording took place in the Lake Gallery, which is one of two spaces that make up Southwark Galleries. So as well as having a large exhibition space, Lake Gallery also contains an artist's bothy, which is a permanent outdoor workshop and residency site, and also a fantastic garden full of flowers and homegrown herbs. After we recorded the conversation, which forms the basis for today's episode, Jude then took me across to the second exhibition space, Dilston Gallery, formerly known as Dilston Grove, which is a repurposed church originally built in 1911 and which is actually the first poured concrete building in England. It's a fascinating exhibition space and I'd really recommend checking that out if you get the opportunity. We start the conversation hearing about Jude's current role as director of Southwark Galleries and what that means working across multiple sites and with different artists and communities in a venue which is situated at the centre of London's art scene. We then talk about Jude's very early aspirations of becoming a dentist and how after deciding that this wouldn't be a viable career route for her, she was careful to pick subjects that would give her options when making career decisions later on. Whilst completing her first degree at university, Jude supported her studies by working in a hotel, but also simultaneously travelled back to Newcastle at weekends to undertake voluntary work, first at Tyne and Weir Archives and Museums, and then later at the Hatton Gallery. 
In 2004, she enrolled on the postgraduate course in Art Museum and Gallery Studies at Newcastle University. And towards the end of that year, the voluntary work that she'd been undertaking with the Hatton Gallery turned into a part-time position. And she talks really fondly about the family-like atmosphere that she experienced while working with the team there. Around this time, Jude also studied with the Open University to develop her knowledge and understanding of art history. This part of our conversation introduces two central and closely linked themes. The first relates to permission, so Jude recalls initially worrying that she wouldn't be allowed to fulfil her ambition of becoming a curator because she didn't have an undergraduate or postgraduate art history qualification, and as a result concluded that she would probably ultimately end up working either in an archive or as a registrar. The second theme that emerges here is about confidence and something that many people refer to as imposter syndrome. This is hugely common in all sectors, not just in the arts, and something that took a while for Jude to resolve. And that resolution seems to coincide with her finding the right venue and the right team of colleagues. Jude then took a big step and decided to relocate to London, securing a role at the Serpentine Gallery as events organiser. At this point we talk a little bit about how London can be an expensive and intimidating city for many early career professionals and how at that point she was not sure if she really wanted to stay in London. Jude then went on to work as studio manager for a colleague which allowed her to get back to working with artists and she used that role to slow the pace of things down and think about what she wanted to do and who she wanted to work with. She then took up a role at Qubit as the gallery manager, describing working there as like being at home and feeling a huge sense of relief. She describes that feeling as being similar to her experience back at the Hatton Gallery, emphasising that the size, scale and ethos of an institution is often critical to happiness for many of us. Unable to broaden her role or reach a higher pay band, she started to look for other opportunities that would allow her to develop her skill set and set herself new goals. After initially deciding that she wanted to relocate to Berlin, she applied for a role at Matt's Gallery in London, where she went on to work closely with the gallery's founder and director Robin Klasnick. Towards the end of our conversation, we talk quite a lot about issues around volunteering and the use of free labour, and what that means for people trying to break into the sector. We end with some brilliant advice from Jude, which is to think laterally about networking. She describes a network simply as everyone you've known, worked with, or come into contact with, and outlines her own technique of sitting down and writing out lists of those people, which can help you to work out who you want to work with, where you want to concentrate and focus your efforts and who you can ask for advice when you really need it. I've put links to as many of the organisations and projects that we cover in the podcast description, so if there's anything that you'd like to look up that Jude and I talk about in our conversation, then that's a good starting point. Don't forget you can follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud and Facebook using the handle at culturalpeeps. And if you want a bit more information about the Careers Pathway project or about any of the conversations or participants, then there is a project blog which is available at culturalpeeps.wordpress.com. That's it from me for now. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you find it useful.
Okay, thanks for joining me today, Judith. If we could just start off by hearing a little bit about who you are and what you currently do. Well, I am director of Southwark Park Galleries. Um, we are an Arts Council MPO and registered charity. Um, contemporary art gallery based across two very distinctive, very um, contrasting venues. Also, we're set in a park, so that gives us a really beautiful setting as well. Um, as director here of a small team, um, I do a bit of everything. Um, I'm the only full-time member of our team. We have a, a core team of six. Um, so my role on a day-to-day -day basis covers all aspects of the gallery's operations. So that's fundraising, um, curating, production, uh, PR, I'm the press manager, um, and also obviously managing the team and all the HR rec um, requirements. Um, reporting to our funders, our board, etc. So it's, it's a really varied um, role which I really enjoy. I joined the organisation four years ago and took over from our founding director Ron Hennick who had set up the galleries back in 1984. So we're 35 years old this year and we're doing a lot to celebrate that anniversary this summer. So you've said that you're the director mm. here at the gallery. How important are job titles to you is that is it important that you define yourself as director here yes it's important um the role well the the job title director obviously was uh given to me i didn't choose it in in terms of you know in terms of our broader staff structure as i've said before we're, we're a small team we don't have an in-house curator um we have a very skilled very small and efficient team my role as director encompasses, which I think it does in many organisations of our scale, lots of different roles. So I'm, I guess, director, curator. I don't, I don't really care about the curator as a title at all. I'd never refer to myself as one unless I've been invited to talk as a curator or someone who's produced lots of exhibitions. Um, so yeah, I, I will... It is my job title, but it's also very much I'm the, the figurehead to represent this organisation and our artist membership as well, actually. Um, and it's, it's a daunting title, but a one that gives you a lot of, <laughs> a lot of responsibility. But something I'm very proud of because um, the vast majority of my jobs in the past have been managing other people's spaces and have had a managerial job description. Um, so, I don't know, it, it represents that I've grown I guess. So you, you mentioned curating and that word curator there, how, how do you feel about that word? I think uh, personally I think um, we have had a very interesting maybe I don't know how many years maybe 20 years of the, the, the rise of the uber curator. Um, something that is interesting socially, um, I looked at it for my thesis actually at Newcastle the role of this intermediary becoming this... Um, in some cases, I have issues with it because I feel as though the, the, the big curatorial ego or superstar curator um, trend, I guess we could call it, has in times overshadowed the artists. The whole point is that we are very lucky to work with artists. That's predominantly why most of us do what we do, because we want to work with artists. We want to support the artists to make the work. I don't need my name on things. I don't, when I see, you know, curated by XXX and various press releases, like, well, 
why wouldn't it be your the curator or the, the person responsible for that within your organisation? Why do you need your name on? Yeah. You know, it's it's our yeah. job. I don't really understand that myself, but then other people, I, I've never really understood that. I see myself, I've always seen myself more as a producer. Um, I sometimes refer to myself as a producer rather than curator if I've ever had to fill in a form. Um, but yeah, I, I, maybe we'll talk about this in a bit. I'm still really, and I hope I always will feel this honoured to work with artists on a day-to-day -day basis, and that's why I get out of bed in the morning. And I've worked with some big-name curators in the past, and they've taught me a hell of a lot. Um, but I have no desire to... I've learned so much from them and hugely respect them, hugely. Yeah. It's just not the avenue I would ever be interested in taking. What does an average working day look like for you? Well, an average working day is interesting when you work at, well, anywhere, I think, but when you work in a park. Um, so Southwark Park's uh, it's 150 years old this year. It's London's first municipal park. Um, it's beautiful. Um, it's looked after by a wonderful team of gardeners who we've worked with, we collaborate with on various projects out in the park and in our own garden. So an average day will start with me coming through a beautiful park, um, meeting various visitors and um, local neighbours who you get to know very well, again, within this park setting. This park is um, our immediate neighbours' front and back gardens. We're, we're surrounded by lots of high-rise flats. So this park is, like most parks in London, really cherished by the local community. So you will meet various local neighbours as you come in every morning. Um, we access the staff entrance to the galleries through our garden. So again, that's a lovely way to start a day. You come to the office via a beautiful garden where we've got an artist residency studio, a bothy and an allotment. So again, it's, you know, you could be dreading coming in on a Monday, but actually by the time you've got into the office, you've already walked through a lovely park, lovely garden. So an average day will uh, start with usually a lot of coffee and um, <laughs> sifting through mountains of emails that have occurred since, you know, if it's an average Monday, there's been a lot of um, to and fro over a weekend. Um, I'm getting much better at not looking at emails out of hours, whatever that means, and on weekends. So I'll sift through and drink a lot of coffee and then plan um, my day ahead, the week ahead and the month ahead. So I'll do that on a Monday quite quietly. Um, and usually today I do finance with my finance manager. It's just a sin usually on a Monday. So Monday's a good day to just get your head clear, get your list sorted and deal with any emergencies that have happened since the Friday night when you left. <laughs> <laughs> and are you working very much on a project basis? So exhibition by exhibition and, and how far ahead are you planning well, we programme currently three years in advance right. of the exhibitions. Um, currently within that three-year plan, we have a, a, a five to ten-year business plan, but within that, the programme itself, exhibitions and learning and public programme is, is arranged three years in advance, primarily right. to give us the best chance possible to fundraise. Right. But also because of how I've trained in previous jobs, I love the commissioning process, um, which means that if you start a conversation... So I'm, I'm working on a commission now for the spring in 2020 with an artist called Fanny Pirelli. Um, we've only just really got into the studio and started talking, but I've been talking to her for about two years about working together. Um, most of the projects I've just completed have been set up three or four years ago. So it gives this really long gestation process, which thus far hasn't been detrimental. 
um, you don't get tired of each other. You just you yeah. can fundraise, you can plan, be really strategic about uh, partnerships, co-commissioning partners, tours, sales even. You yeah. know, so you can be a lot more strategic if you've got those things in place and you're working towards something over a few years. Um, so simultaneously, I'm commissioning around 10 projects at the same time. Right. as well as delivering the current exhibition of the show that's next, which is a lot. It's huge of a... Yeah. yeah. And then also fundraising for building, exactly. looking after the physical... Yeah, everything. ...building and team. Yeah, so it's a lot, but it's, it means that every day is different. <laughs> One day is a nice calm day, and then the rest of the week goes into, you know, reprioritising every few minutes, basically. You set your plan, you know, meetings constantly, meetings about meetings. Um, but in between those things, yeah. um, we have regular catch-ups as a team. We have monthly team um, sessions, but also I, I tend to meet with my individual um, uh, colleagues on um, at least once or twice a week and just, again, look at the list would set at the start of the week and then look at it again at the end of the week and look at where the curveballs have taken us away from yeah. various strategic points. But... So, so do you find that, that a real challenge to balance that firefighting of immediate problems with strategic long-term or medium and long-term planning that you've got going on? It can be really difficult. You know, recently we had to do some emergency repairs on one of our buildings, which is a listed building from 1911. Uh, we had to shut the exhibition temporarily that was there at the time and make the space safe and uh, make sure the artwork was safe, make sure nothing, you know, we had to shut for a day, two days which was heartbreaking for everybody involved, but we had to do it. And in doing so, I then spent about three days in that building waiting for builders, waiting for architects, waiting for, which took me away from three funding application deadlines I had that week. Um, you know, and we're a really small team. So you, uh, you sometimes have to drop the ball a little bit to manage the immediate, but that's the case for everybody. Yeah. You can be in a massive team, you could work at the Tate, and there's hundreds of you, but there'll always be a curveball. So being as organised as possible, um, working in as much advance as you can, means in theory you can swerve or manage curveballs that bit more calmly, and you know everything gets done. So how does your current job compared to what you thought you might be doing when you were at school as a child? As a child, I wanted to be a dentist. Right. I have very shaky hands and I can't add up, but I can do budgets, honest. Um, <laughs> <laughs> really good support for my parents. <laughs> um, so by the time I did GCSEs, it was made clear that I would be um, naive to do A-levels, that would get me into dentistry school because I could barely pass a maths exam, which right. I needed at the time. So then I decided to do fine art, uh, art and design for A-level. And all of a sudden just thought, well, stuff it. What I've always wanted to do isn't going to be possible. I'm not built for it. Um, I was really good at art and English, so I led with those. And, you know, I did art, geography and English and did well. and decided I wanted to go to Oxford and do English Lit. Uh, I got very close, but didn't get there. But uh, after that, I just sort of free, free fall, see what happened. Yeah. I wanted to do fine art at university after that. I wasn't allowed because um, my 
you know, that it was, we thought as a family it would be too financially prohibitive. We, we didn't have the money to put me through art school. That was right. the chat. Because well, my cousin had done a, it. Not have a kind of... The career yeah. thing afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> something I still bring up with my mum to this day. I had to do something <laughs> that was, what was it, academic and useful. Right. Which I still um, shout at my mum and she gets really embarrassed and apologises. So I did philosophy <laughs> to really annoy my mum. That was me being rebellious. That's right, how okay. rebellious I was at school. Yeah. Philosophy um, to philosophy. rebel. <laughs> I said you had to be, you had to do something <laughs> useful. So I was like, right, I'm going to do philosophy. And it was bloody useful. And I did English Lit as my sort of insurance. Um, so, yeah, we, we couldn't afford for me to do fine art because my cousin had done it before, a few years before me, and it cost a bomb for my aunt to put my, my cousin through art school. We weren't in a, the, their financial situation. So uh, I did philosophy, but I, I specialised in aesthetics for half three of the four years. So I, I was always feeding this need that. to... So I've been dragged through every art gallery there was in the north right. as a kid. I was always at English Heritage and Heritage events every weekend, whether I wanted to be there or not. So I'd grown up with a very um, heritage and cultural um, interest, you know, as a family always did. So I'm still trying to work out what the shift was. I mean... So we, did you get any careers advice there? <laughs> so you, you talked about dentistry. Mm. Where, where did that come from? I just, well, my dentist had an art collection right. and a really big car. <laughs> <laughs> and I and thought it was amazing. Together yeah. with a, with and I'd been the dentist a lot as a kid. I had, like, things I were going to do, but I had, I had way too many teeth, so I lived in the dentist's right. throughout most of my most of my life until I left home. I was always getting sets of teeth removed. I had far too many teeth. So I wasn't scared of the dentist. He mm. made so much money that he could have his own art collection and used to talk to me about it while I was getting my teeth pulled out and had an amazing car. So I was like, right, I want to do that from being about six. Um, so the shift, I don't know really why I decided to, I guess it just science wasn't possible for me. So I had to look at my, what made my heart sing and that had always been art. Right. I just hadn't necessarily... No one had ever given me careers advice that I could work in culture at all. Um, my careers advice had always been, well, if you can't do science, you should go into speech therapy. Either be a librarian or be a speech therapist. They were the uh, repeated... From different options. people? Yeah. Really? Which is weird. Yeah. I don't know. So um, would you, was that like a result of a questionnaire or something like that? Or? Yeah, but also my skills, apparently. <clears throat> it was really odd. Mm. Um, well, it could have been very interesting, but um, I, you know, I, I drew and I painted a lot, you know, outside of school. I'd always had, you know, I'd always, my mum had always, you know, drawn with me. She was very creative. So I guess I started to think about having a career in something I actually loved for the first time rather than this is going to make me loads of money yeah. and I'll be able to buy stuff. It was the first sort of shift. Um, so being able to look at... Um, visual cultures through aesthetics was really interesting and I was doing a lot to do with moral philosophy as well. Um, so the combination for me really worked and I got to sort of change and choose options. Um, and I was working for an art dealer at the time in Edinburgh, so I was volunteering for her. Uh, she ran um, a small gallery within a really big Swish hotel in Edinburgh. <laughs> and I can't remember why... Oh, how I got in touch with her. I worked in a hotel further up. I don't, I don't ever remember how we met. 
But I basically used to run an art store for in the festival and I'd work in a little shop right. um, for free for about two years. And then towards the end of my, no, the last two years of my degree, I started volunteering for Tyneway Museums because I started to get a taste, but I didn't know, I still didn't understand what my options were and no one was telling me. And So this is at university yeah. by this point in Edinburgh? So by the time I was, yeah. So you did quite a lot of volunteering yeah, then across there, yeah. And then that I wasn't, I wasn't sure because I hadn't done a visual arts because I hadn't done fine art. I never, ever, ever contemplated working in a contemporary gallery, right? Because I didn't think I'd be allowed. Um, I tried every year to get onto the history of art module, but there was never space. Edinburgh was always highly oversubscribed for <laughs> history of art. Um, so I thought, well, I really loved museums. I was coming back on weekends, because from Edinburgh to Newcastle with a student rail card was really cheap. So I would do a Saturday at the Discovery, or I was in a pool of um, invigilators and would help with kids' workshops and things, and I loved it. And thought, planned, that when I finished my degree, I would stay on and do a PhD in aesthetics. But my tutor um, retired that year, and no one, the aesthetics closed basically until they right. recruited a few years later. So that's when I started looking at other options, which is how I found the course at Newcastle um, Art Museum and Gallery Studies. And because I was already uh, coming back home on weekends and summer holidays, during my finals as well, I was coming back like all of Easter, I was at the Discovery Museum and stuff, I wasn't revising, I was having a really nice time working in the museum sector, um, as well as working for this art dealer as well. Um, I decided to do that course, and one of the uh, prerequisites then, I don't know what it is now, was that I had to volunteer in an art gallery to get onto the course, because I didn't have history of art and I didn't have a fine art right. background. Um, and I think you told me that, actually. I'd also said that there were some spaces at the Hatton. Yeah, for, for so volunteering. For volunteering, yeah. so I So when, what year was that? That was 2004. So I started volunteering June, July, as soon as I moved back. It helped that I'd already been in the pool for Tinyway Museums, not that Tinyway Museums owned the gallery at that point, but it yeah. meant that I kind of had a good, I had good recommendations as well. I had sort of trusted. Um, came into the organisation that way and started the course in, what, September, October. Within a few months, I became the Saturday person. So I was getting paid um, within a few months. Right. I was working at Marks and Spencers at night and five o'clock starts on weekends, which helped pay towards my fees. Um, but yeah, that's how, I, that's how everything changed, basically. So there's a big, there's an art thing that goes through there from the dentist. Yeah. There is an <laughs> art thing that goes, well, I mean, the collection, and you know, so there's a, there is a, a, a thread, isn't there, that passes through all of that stuff and all of that decision-making. I, th I think I'm just quite struck by, you know, you coming home from Edinburgh at weekends, so you must be forfeiting a big part of your social life in Edinburgh. So, coming to this, you must have been quite focused about or thinking about what came next, what came after university. I think I was really worried. I was really stressed by the idea of the end. And did, did you know what you <laughs> didn't want to do as much as not quite being sure what you did? I knew it. Again, I keep saying that I knew it had to be something that made my heart sing. I wanted to work with people. I'd spent four really intensive years in books, which I loved, and the, the kind of indulgence of it at the time was bliss. I loved mm -hmm. it. Um, 
and I guess that opportunities were opening up or new worlds were opening up that I just didn't ever know about. I didn't know they were creating courses. Yeah. I knew, you know, I knew about goldsmiths and various places, but I didn't know they did courses for working in galleries and museums or theory or I didn't, I just didn't know this stuff existed. Yeah. You know, I was determined to go to Oxford all those years before, but never knew they had an article. Right. I had a very surface level understanding of the world, I think. Yeah. And I just didn't That's know quite what common, was I think, at that age, young, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So you were, by that point, doing Saturdays at the Hatton. Yeah. And you started the programme. Is that, about, is that, yeah. is that how that worked? Mm-hmm. So what happened next? Uh, I loved that course. I loved how vocational it was. I loved that I was actually going home with skills, tangible skills, after four years of, um, again, brilliant thought and kind of, you know, more expert. I don't know. I, I, I always got really frustrated with philosophy because I could never actually just say, every argument would always be, well, it could be this, it could be that. Yeah. <laughs> and it drove me insane. What, the openness of it? Uh, yeah. I enjoyed it, but then I was like, yeah, but still, we need to close this. It needs to close somewhere. It can't just all be open. Um, So doing something that I really enjoyed, that signalled you could kind of change things as well and you could help people. You could, you know, uh, doing application writing really early on was amazing. So you had all these practice applications. That's, I mean, that's all I do. Without that, I don't know where I would have started. So you had really... I remember doing an HR section. It was really bespoke and it really gave me hope that I could actually have a career in this stuff. Um, Which again, I just hadn't, I didn't really know where I was going, but I knew I had to start making some, start trying some things out to try and see what was out there and what the options could then be. Um, Because I wasn't going to stay in academia, although I continued. Um, And started a... History of Art Open University as well towards the end of the course at Newcastle to oh, try wow. and bolster So you were doing that. those two things together? And tried to finish it when I came down here and had to and pause doing, it. Doing I the Saturdays that. as well? Yeah. Whoa, I'm that's artists. a huge amount. Yeah. It, but it was great. And because the course was a week on, week, one week off, I was doing a lot of the reading and prep whilst volunteering in the week or working on the Saturday, which would then all write my report, whatever. Yeah. You know, it gave me, and because they were all really supportive of me doing that course simultaneously, um, you know, I'd be learning, uh, you know, um, theories of display or interpretation writing or all of this amazing stuff I was learning. The next week I was in the gallery doing it, object handling, all sorts, collections management. So it was a dream, actually, to actually learn how to do it theoretically, but the next week go in and do it yeah. was amazing. That's a rare opportunity, yeah. I think. And you'd get, I was getting so much more than just doing a few hours on a Saturday because I was actually in the collection. I was working with, you know, collections manager at the time. Or, um, it was great. So you've got a combination of things happening there, haven't you? You've got working in the gallery, so the Hatton Collection's both historical, but Ooh. at that point there was a lot of commissioning of yeah. artists and kind of bought in touring exhibitions, yeah. so a lot of contemporary stuff. You've got that art history um, open university thing happening. Didn't yeah. I didn't know about that. That's yeah. kind of massive. So you've kind of got a growing 
confidence area there and then exposure to professionals and those skills mm. happening through the course so did that change the way in which you thought about the possibility of working in contemporary art and, and did you kind of get rid of the historical stuff well uh, I thought again I always had this chip that well I won't be able to do that because I haven't got I haven't got an art degree so I decided I was going to be an archivist right. or a collections manager right. or registrar because I loved all of that and I started an audit of the collection at the Hatton um, which was brilliant. So I set that up as a new not a sort of database, really, and did an inventory of what we had. And again, being trusted to do that, I mean, that was, to, that was after I graduated, but to have finished my MA and go in and be able to do that sort of thing re in real time was amazing. Yeah. Um, the networks, I guess, that were made possible through that course and through that job, working with contemporary artists on new commissions and as you say the touring program that um, we we're part of the TED group so you were meeting you know Hayward curators or you'd be meeting I remember working with Mike Nelson who I've then gone on to work with a few times in, the, yeah. in later life you were meeting fantastic artists from all over the country and internationally you were showing at the same time really important like the Tapier exhibition these beautiful really significant bodies of work that I never dreamed I'd be allowed to touch, never mind, you know, um, respond to in programming or public programs. So it was such a rich, I mean, I was there three and a half years, all in all. I learned so much and we, again, we're a really small team. Yep. Huge galleries. It was huge. Um, quite a decent sized collection for a gallery of that size as well. Um, which was also, you know, very interesting in terms of collections and um, uh, as it being primarily being born out of a teaching collection. Um, but looking at the stories of the university as well, actually, through its collection was really interesting. Um, it opened it opened up the world, basically, working there. The, that in combination with, um, you know, I remember going to see Alistair Robson at NGCA, going around their show, talking to him about how you know, he was very much in my mind this, uh, he opened my eyes because he, he got to read loads of books. I'm yeah. sure he doesn't have actually anyone he was trying to read as I thought he did. <laughs> I was like, wow, yeah, he's this got a is lot so of books. cool. He's got a lot of books. He's got a lot of books. Lot of books. Lot of books. <laughs> and was doing really exciting programmes above the library in Sunderland. And I loved it. And going to workplace, I remember meeting Paul and Miles on the trip through the course. And also I'd been away for four years, so I came back and didn't, you know, I hadn't been at Newcastle University with half of the art scene in Newcastle. I didn't have yeah. that. So I was making friends through the course who were, weren't necessarily on the gallery studies course either. So you had people who, you know, I was making friends with people who worked at Jorvik, which is my favourite place on earth when I was doing <laughs> You had this really rich friendship group and, I guess, professional networks that grew and grew and grew in that time. Um, and, yeah, I've been trying to work out when did I make the decision, but it just sort of, just sort of happened. happened and I really enjoyed it and I guess it was going back to this thing that I didn't realise I would I could work in, in, in an area of something I really loved I don't know if that sounds so it sounds like networking is quite an important thing there in terms of experiencing what mm. the city has to offer what Newcastle and Edinburgh by the sound of it had yeah. to offer because I was desperate to leave home right so it's, uh, you know, I, I was desperate to leave Newcastle. I was desperate to start, you know, in a fresh place. When you're 18, you kind of want to do that. You want to leave your family for a bit. 
But again, coming back, you know, Baltic had opened, all these things had happened, and I really felt like I'd missed out. Even though I was coming home all the time, I wasn't part of that. I really wanted to explore my own cultural heritage more, which I felt like I had done, but there was this big gap, which I think was another reason for coming back and working in, in the museums sector on weekends. I wanted to feel... I wasn't homesick, but I felt like I needed to return a little bit back to my own. Yeah, that makes sense. Did, do you think that at that point were you thinking that you would stay living in Newcastle? I thought I was going to move back to Scotland. Right. Which is something I've toyed with all my life. Right. until quite recently. Uh, if you have a good time at university, you'll probably be really nostalgic and in love with that city for the rest of your life. Um, actually, going back there might not be as you imagined. Um, yeah, I was always going to go back. And actually, there's a big turning point, actually, during that course, where I, for my placement, uh, had been desperate to... So I was going to finish my dissertation up in Edinburgh, move in with my boyfriend, who was up there, and do my placement in Edinburgh and then I was going to live in Edinburgh and we, you know, we're going to settle down and do all these things. I didn't get the place, well, we rejected the placement because uh, at the time there wasn't really a suitable um, project for me to work on and it wouldn't have really satisfied the goals of that module. So I worked at the Hatton. So I was already working at the Hatton on, you know, on a piecemeal basis. But doing my placement there changed everything. And at the time, I was like, oh, but I'm already work here. How is this going to be useful? Well, that's when I started the inventory of the collection. Yeah. That's when I started helping with some of the education projects. I'd never done anything like that before. Um, and again, was really a lot more ingrained in supporting Liz Ritson, who was the acting curator, on the programme delivery. And that's when everything went bang. And I started to think, actually, maybe I can work in contemporary art without that background. So were you putting on exhibitions at that point or contributing towards the exhibition programme? So as assistant curator, or curatorial assistant, sorry, so I supported the curator and the exhibition manager. Um, so, I mean, I, I was supporting the artist, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't leading on the projects, but it was amazing. Yeah. And again, I just, I'd never dreamed I'd have, I didn't think I'd ever be able to work like that or have access to a job like that. So how long were you at the Hatton for in total? About three and a half, half years. years. So what happened next? Um, I decided, so lots of things in your life will change to signal that maybe you should try something else. Um, I had a breakup and decided I wasn't going to move back to Scotland, I was going to leave. And I'd always fancied living in London just for a bit. I just wanted to try it, that's all. I'll do a year. It's been 12 years. Uh, <laughs> and also, you know, I'd learned so much. I loved that job. I still say it's like the best job I've ever had in my life. It signalled that I thought my life was going to be in Scotland and it was all planned and kind of laid out and then I was like, all of a sudden everything was new and different and I was free. So I decided to start completely from scratch and move away. Although it hurt a lot to leave the Hatton because I felt like I was, I was in a family, which I loved. Um, and probably would never get that very job ever again. And I was right, actually, until so now. You started applying for stuff then, did you? Yeah. you keeping your eye open for... I Well, I applied for one job and I got it. So right. I, don't, I still don't really know how this happened either. So <laughs> I, I, I decided, right, stuff it, I'll just go for a job. I applied for um, an event organiser role. No, um, events administrator role at the Serpentine, which I heard thought was uh, exhibition programme events. And it, it actually wasn't. 
Um, so I was obviously very thorough in my reading and preparation for that interview. <laughs> um, <laughs> within a month, I'd had three interviews for this job. I just pinged off a quick application for and I remember having to fly down because I had like 24 hours notice for the third round interview with the yeah. director and I had to go and did it and I was offered the job. Yeah. So I was ripping the plaster off and I didn't have time to think because if I'd thought about it, I would never have gone. I just went with it and moved down within a couple of months and that was it. It was really fast. That must have been quite terrifying. Though, Absolutely. Moving to London. Yeah. I didn't really know anyone either. Yeah. Within the arts, the salary wasn't great. It was so good compared to Newcastle. <laughs> <laughs> I bought so many okay. dresses. Right. I lived in a, a bedsit, which I thought at the time was really glam, having like grown up with the sort of bourgeois indie music where bedsits right. all sounded really glamorous. Like romantic, in yeah, it, kind exactly. of. Okay. So, ooh, <laughs> uh, so I lived in a bedsit in South London, um, was on the best salary I'd ever dreamt of, which looking back was a pittance for an average 14-hour day six to seven day a week job um but i uh i was i was barely at home because i worked such long hours and was very busy and i yeah it flew by i did a year there um i was promoted about halfway through that year um and it's really weird i can't remember what my job title was but i went from being the administrator of the events department to running the events department um, with a sort of mentor who I would check in with, who had done that role previously until they'd recruited to fulfil that role full-time after that. So during that time, I was um, responsible for generating income through venue hire and corporate support. Well, not corporate support. We had a very, very good um, manager who did that, who then went on to work at Tate and fundraised a hell of a lot for the um, Switch House. She, she was amazing. So I was with wonderful fundraisers. I was in the development team, not the exhibitions team as I thought I was going to be. But my God, what an education. It was incredible. Um, you'd have a weekly brainstorm session with everyone across the development team and think about forthcoming projects. So again, planning a couple of years in advance, maybe, to then start breaking down a budget into sponsorship, support and kind, yeah. trust and foundations, and you break it down, individual giving and all the rest of it. And then I would have to raise a certain target of venue hire and also the hire of the pavilions each year for all the corporate supporters and circles, all the private views I used to run, all the exhibition dinners, after parties, breakfasts, press views, yeah. anything event-based I would be running. So, so although that's not maybe the job that you thought you were going for, no. you know, that's a crash course <laughs> in, in the mechanics of what it takes to run yeah. A venue, because that they're the reality, aren't they, now of what yeah. working in a contemporary art venue is yeah. for a lot of people. So I'd gone from supporting with book launches, for example, and once we did a gig at the Hatton and it seemed like the most yeah. rock and roll revolutionary thing we'd ever done <laughs> for the future heads. Yeah. Yeah. And then a couple months on, I'm looking after Dan Graham and Michelle order for a weekend because I also had to just be there to support the artists if they needed anything. So right. I had a strange sort of, I don't know if it's the same now, but there was a, a weird sort of waitress vibe to it as well, which I didn't particularly like. Um, but being with Matthew Barney for his entire install in case he needed a cup of tea, for example. So I got to meet some oh, of my yeah. heroes and actually spend time, real time with them out of hours, yeah. nobody else in around. Um, so I had this really weird job, but it taught me so much. 
Um, it taught me how to sell, which, you know, I run a non-profit. I've pretty much always worked in non-profits. But we all have to sell all the time. You're selling ideas, you're pitching all the time. And that was a crash course in sales and it was yeah. brutal. Well, it felt brutal at the time because it felt so different. I'd never had exposure to that before. And I loved it. Yeah. I loved making deals. I did fashion <laughs> shows, I did London Fashion Week, I did a big Vivian Westwood launch. And when it, I made quite a lot of money and I was quite shocked that I had that in me to be that salesperson, but never lie. Yeah. It, was, it, it wasn't about anything to do with false promises. It was about really celebrating. This is something I've really learned and I've used in every role I've had since. How to truly cherish the... We're all unique, but we're all so similar in many ways. You know, how to really celebrate what you have, the core assets of an organisation, and how you sell that story. So it's your marketing... It's all yeah. it comes, it's how you even recruit. It's all in that storytelling because it's real and how you make yourself stand out. Because, I mean, everything's completely saturated. London's full of galleries. How you do an application form. Yeah. It's all about selling the true assets of the ethos of that organisation, never mind what's on the walls. So it taught me so much. It was brilliant. So yeah. quite often those are things that are quite... Not peripheral, I guess that's the wrong way to describe it, but you kind of have to do it whilst you're doing other things like exhibitions. Mm. And so you've got this period of time where you're just doing yeah, that pitching every and day. refining those skills. Yeah. So that's got to be pretty handy for yeah. what comes next. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a very difficult job. I worked far too long hours. <laughs> but the actual what I learned from it and the experiences every day have given me more skills than I, I ever imagined at the time. It's helped me fundraise for years ever since. Um, and also, you know, I, I was pretty good at it. The, it was the things that you realise you're good at, but yeah. the time you go, and I didn't realise this was so useful. Like, I've been brought up to have quite old-fashioned hosting skills. Okay. So I've grown up with old people. <laughs> <laughs> and I've had to lay the table in such a way, and if right. you don't, you get told off. Yep. So I've had quite a tough upbringing in terms of standards, and you look after people, and you have impeccable manners. Even if the world's collapsing around you, you still smile at the nice ladies from church and use the right cloth, right? <laughs> Going to Serpentine was brilliant because Julia was an incredibly inspirational boss, um, Julia Payton George, and she just, you know, I was good at my job, but she also really liked that. I took great pride in laying the table properly, and it might sound so stupid, but it's not. It's one aspect of how you make people in a boardroom really comfortable yeah. or more comfortable. Or, so I do that for interviews. I make sure any meeting I have, but we've not done this now. Hosting is an integral part of this job. Yeah. So working in hotels, I, you know, I worked for Sheraton Hotels throughout university, where you're trained and you're drilled. And again, like back of house, you can be screaming and headbutting a wall, but you walk out and it's like you're walking out on the stage and everything's going to be okay because you're there to make everybody else's experience as good as you can. So... All of this sort of personal training, I guess, has made me, I believe, to be a good host. I mean, that's one of millions of things you're doing every day. But every single person who comes through this door gets the same personal welcome. So you're setting the scene to try and make the best experience possible. Yeah. So all the time you're at the Serpentine and you're seeing all of those 
exhibitions going up mm. and that was kind of maybe the job that you thought that you were going for in the first place. <laughs> yeah. What what did you think all of the time I'm going to be doing this soon or was this were you heading in a different direction at that point? I was wondering if I wanted to stay in London at all. Right. Um I I think I was still petrified at that point. It it was very quick, as I've said, it was a very quick transition and thank goodness it was because I probably would have backed out if I thought about it too long. Um, I was trying to work out, um, I was interviewing for studio managers jobs for white cube artists. I went through a few, I was offered a few roles and then um, uh, nothing bad happened, but I, I didn't, I was, the, I was offered uh, the Chapman Brothers studio when they were going to rebuild hell I was offered that job and within a few hours they changed their mind it gives to their pal and I nearly worked for Sam Taylor Wood so I was looking at studio management jobs because that's how I thought I could get back to it with artists again right what about but using I, those skills yeah as to actually go and back. sit with an artist to be running yeah. the studio to be organizing to be setting up systems and support and doing a kind of registrarial it, it sort of seemed like a bridge for me where I'd be helping an artist, um, you know, be working as an intermediary between the artist and their gallery, if they had one, which of course at that point, they were nearly all white cube artists I was speaking to, um, which was a connection through Newcastle, and I can't remember who it was. But it was the idea that I could sort of be a, not a custodian, but be that intermediary who would help with the inventory of the work, support on loans, support on commissioning as well. So you had this like conduit role, which I found really attractive. Um, and then, you know, I worked briefly. So I, I left Serpentine and worked at White Cube for three months um, as a sales assistant, which meant organising trips for the sales managers and making packs and yep. looking at... And again, it sort of was very... It was only a temporary role to, to enable me to basically keep myself in London and apply for other things. And that was very useful in terms of having a bit of time to think. It was a much slower pace than I'd be used to. And I applied for a job, a gallery called Cubit, and I got the job. And I, all of a sudden, was in a wonderful DIY artist-run collective gallery space. And I thought, oh, there we go, I'm home. It was the, it was the closest I'd felt to being at the Hatton again because I was with artists. Yeah. I was in a really small team. All my bosses were artists, they were a collective. Um, and I was physically, you know, my second week I was painting walls and I, I, I was a huge relief actually. Cause so, so were you at any point contemplating going to work in a, you know, really big organisation or had you made that decision by that point and you kind of refined that down? I interviewed for two roles at Tate. Right. So in, I cheated on Serpentine a lot actually, I applied for various jobs. And I, yeah, interviewed for two public programme curator assistant jobs at Tate and just missed out both times. Um, going through that process, I didn't think I was necessarily ready to work for such a big organisation. And also, I didn't really want to give up the, the variation, the roles yeah. in smaller organisations do allow. And yes, it's stressful because you're juggling 20 balls at a time. I would really struggle, I think, to work in a huge organisation where I'd have one area, yeah. you know. Um, so, yeah, I think that the Qubit definitely, it was the right place. Um, and I was really surprised to get the job. Because, um, again, I just don't think my confidence was particularly up there at that point. 
And I'd been given a character reference by an artist I'd met at the Serpentine called Tristan and Michelle, who had also brought me on um, during my sort of wilderness three months period where I was getting my head sorted. He took me on as an artist assistant, so I had another income as well. Right. So thanks to Tristan and Michelle, who had done a short cubit and was coming back to do an archive exhibition there. Um, he was one of my referees and that again sort of boosted my confidence in being able to work with artists, which yeah. got me, yeah. It was a wonderful place, Cubit. So how long were you at Cubit for? Th three years, th almost four years. I seem to have done three, three or four year chunks. Really? <laughs> um, Do you feel like there's like a natural cycle there yeah. for you where you just think, right, I'm ready to go now. Yeah. I've kind of seen everything that this job yeah. has to offer. I did that, Cubit definitely, and there is a glass ceiling Cubit. Um, and I had this very frank conversation with my chair, and he's like, yep, and you've hit it, so it's time. I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> okay. Um, but it was nice that I could have such a, a frank conversation as well. And my, you know, the Cubit is an artist-run organisation with gallery, stu well, studios primarily, gallery, and a learning programme, which is very experimental. It's amazing. Um, so my bosses were artists. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, in the lead up to Turner Prize, I was up on the roof with Dexter Dollwood, blacking out the windows with the, with the plastic, you know, because I had a projection show about to go in. So every artist in that collective has a role. Um, Sarah Pickstone and Baba Ghazi um, were my bosses. They were chair of the um, gallery committee. So they were all part of different committees to have different responsibilities as a collective. And it was such a breath of fresh air. Yeah. And there's lots of artist collectors, but lots haven't lasted as, I mean, they're what, 26? Are they 26 now? Um, founded by artists, run by artists. So I was the gallery manager and we had a curatorial bursary, which is still ongoing, for an uh, emerging curator to have an 18-month programme. So I got to work with three of those curators. So I had really different experiences, met so many artists. I, I met a lot of German artists who I'd never, you know, I'd never been to Germany until I started working there. Um, so it was... It was brilliant. I was helping install, I was fundraising, I was doing the press, I was writing the, you know. So again, a job like, uh, you know, it, it, it reminded me of the Hatton. Um, but obviously, you know, it was more senior and I had a lot more responsibility and... But yeah, it was very freeing and it, it showed, it opened me up again to all of these other possible worlds in London and yeah. that there's not just a huge institution, of course. But when you move to a city and you don't know anyone... I was going to say, because it sounds hard. like your network's kind of coming together at that point. Yeah, so that you're able to draw shift. on artists for references yeah. and they're helping you to plug those financial gaps mm. when you've got between jobs. Yeah. So had you decided that you were going to stay in London at that yeah. point or was this just like another, like, punt it and see what happens? I, I stayed, I loved it, but as I say, it hit the ceiling with my head. And by that point, I had written... So, because I'd been going to Berlin a lot... I'd developed a very good um, relationship with um, uh, DART, the German Embassy, um, and the Goethe Institute especially. And when I was at Serpentine, I'd go for my lunch at the Goethe Institute because we weren't in the main gallery, we were just next door to Goethe. So I got to know, you know I'd started to build this network, as you say, which um, was full of really supportive, brilliant people. And um, I was going to Berlin a lot, so I decided I was going to move to Berlin. Cliché. And I'd written a business plan and I was trying to learn German really badly, really badly. 
Um, <laughs> well, like a kind of... Well, I had a tape. Right. And it, it wasn't going very well. Um, <laughs> but I was determined. I was going to move and I was going to set up a kind of exchange residency thing. The Goethe Institute were going to put on, me on like a crash course, German course. So was this with the Goethe Institute? No, was but they were going to help me, which right. was amazing. Yeah. They were really supportive. And I've forgotten the officer's name now, but she was amazing. And the German embassy were brilliant. Um, and... You know, we worked with a lot of embassies at Cuba because we were showing a lot of international artists and their embassies were so supportive um, in terms of funding, but also in terms of opportunities for the gallery and, you know, us as people who wanted to celebrate their artists. It, it, it was great. Um, and they had very different budgets then. <laughs> uh, but I decided, yeah, I was going to move. And some of the artists I'd worked with lived in Berlin, so I'd have a network. I'd be able to do some studio work with... One artist in particular who I was also cutting slides. I was mounting slides for an artist for about two years for cash. So I had some, you know, there was a cushion there. It wasn't like moving to London where I didn't really know anybody. Mm. There were a few people which, and I could rent somewhere and rent out some rooms and run a residency and have a small gallery. And I did it all sussed. And then, you know, just sent a quick application off and got a job at Matt's Gallery. <laughs> So why did there must so have been something in there? Was that like a security <laughs> thing? Like yeah. a so you were covering I, yeah. covering your back by thinking I do take this... risks, but I'll do them very calculatedly. Yeah, right, okay. Yeah, just in case. So did you have a dilemma there then? Yeah. Do I carry on with this? Yeah. Because once you've covered your back, but then that comes through, that makes the risk I don't know what oh, the no. phrase is. Uh, More stressful. Yeah. It made it very difficult and but I'd, I'd been reading about Matt's Gallery since I was in well, school, since sixth form. Yeah. So, again, working with Mike Nelson, for example, at the Hatton was huge because I'd been, you know, watching bikes work since my teacher told me about them. Yep. I was like 17. Um, and with every layer as I've gone forward, it's, it's taught me that actually I could, I could live in London. I've, I've never really thought until quite recently, actually, that I can live here. This is actually my home. Because everything felt so transient and quick and there were, I didn't know how I'd afford to stay here and all these things. But that gave me another chance at maybe having a home somewhere. So I stayed. And, you know, Matt's is one of the best galleries there is. Uh, I learnt more with Robin Klasnick in a week than I've learnt my whole career. Um, I loved their programme. I loved some of their artists, are some of my favourite living artists. So the chance to work with some of my heroes, not just making tea, yeah. actually working collaboratively <laughs> yeah. in and producing at an that import. scale, yeah. installation-wise, amazing. Yeah. So I had to do it, and it made the decision. It di it didn't sting. It it was the right decision to make in the end. And it was, I was flippant. It wasn't like a quick application. I, I took yeah. it very seriously. Um, so did you feel like you had roots then by this point? It sounds like yeah. it. So it took a while because, yeah. again, I moved without knowing anyone. I, um, all my networks have come through professional, you know, colleagues and through that route, really. And socially, is all of that stuff meshed together? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Big time. So everybody that you socialise with is through... A lot of them. Yeah, through work. And... Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, Matt's, Matt has, uh, well, working for Matt's gallery gave me 
uh, like he's the godfather of installation art. So I learned so much in terms of how to read spaces. Right. The people skills I developed through all of the years, all of the years pre-university even, helped me, I believe, be a good support person as the producer. I wasn't the creator, I was certainly not the director, but I was the person working with the artist on, you know, translating the artist's um, brief into a funding application. I was the one doing all the funding. I was the one managing the budget. I was the person getting the sponsorship of 300 televisions for Susan Hiller for free, as long as I used their logo correctly, or getting like five grand's worth of Kodak sponsorship for Emma Hartshaw. And I really, really loved that stuff. Yeah. And I'd learned how to do that best at a certain time, because I had access to these geniuses when it came to support and kind and corporate sponsorship. Yeah. So I had the pitching, I had the storytelling, I had the sort of um, translation skills, if you like, from working with an artist and then translating that into a really effective comprehension test, basically, which is a, any Trust or Foundations application. Yeah. So that's when I really started, I don't know, again, I keep talking about other possible worlds keep opening up. It, it was a really exciting, very passionate job where I felt integral to the success of each and every project on a very personal basis so that was actually really hard as well because if I didn't get the money we wouldn't get the money yeah so it was heavy and it was a lot of work but god's very satisfying because we we achieved so much so what was the actual title of that job I was gallery manager but then changed it to assistant director and did that reflect what you did did it, either of those teach or was it just everything I did pretty much everything, but, so we at that point had, so director Robin, myself, then two or three days a week, a artist manager slash sales, who I line managed, and they would be, because mats do represent either a non-profit, they're not a commercial gallery, but they, they look after a stable of artists, anyway. and we'd have an intern which was sponsored by a trust for six months at a time, so you had a, you had a team, but... Uh, I did a lot, but I wanted to have a rule that... So when he's, the first question was, you know, how important are rules? I'm like, oh, it's not important. Yeah, it is, because I was, I was representing the gallery and the director on a daily... My second week in the job was at Venice, where Mike Nelson... This was... <laughs> it's terrifying. I had a week's handover. <laughs> and then I had, to go, I, had, I had to go to Venice. It was terrible. I had to go to Venice to be Matt's gallery when Matt, Mike Nelson was... Great Britain's representative at the Venice Biennale. So there was me. What a hardship. Oh, it was dreadful. <laughs> I had to buy new dresses. Um, I had to, you know, it was me, Franco Nero, Lisa 303 Gallery in New York, and me. Working out sales strategies and co-hosting dinners. And, you know, coming back to the network and um, it's not, I hate this, it's who you know, but... Um, the natural progression or the weird coincidences, this is what I say is more coincidence. Through the Hatton, I'd worked with Richard Grayson on a Hayward Touring show, which had been born from the Murtabon, yeah. um, a secret service, which is again where Mike Nelson comes into it, who was commissioned to do a new piece for the Hatton. And then that went on too with the Hayward Touring programme. So Richard Grayson was on the panel for my Matt Gallery um, interview because he's one of their artists. Yeah. So Hubert had an artist I'd helped during a marathon at the Serpentine, who then took me on and, you know, gave me a character reference for Cupid, 
And the same thing happened for Matt's gallery. On paper, I was a really good fundraiser and producer. And Richard said, well, I can vouch for her organisation skills and, you know, working on that show. So that helped me in my second week of the job because I knew Mike Nelson's work. I knew yeah. him a little bit. <laughs> and Richard Grayson, and there were various people, so I got to know my board really well because they were all there. And it was, um, you know, staying with my colleagues in a very small hotel room. We got to know each other very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> but also helped me piece together these people I'd read about magazines or the committees for certain juries or art fairs because I was having to hold my own with them in my second week of the job yeah. and take royalty around the exhibition as the great British representative. So that was really brilliant, quite stressful, but brilliant. So how did you feel doing that? Were you thinking, keep it together? Yeah. Was that always this, I like, I had yeah, a heart attack on the last day, but I just, I drunk so much coffee. What, through nervousness? Yeah. Right. The last, I got through the full week, went, was taken for my lunch, because I wasn't really getting time to eat. <laughs> and, because um, it was really full on days, so it was great, it was great fun, it was really hot. Um, but, yeah, I was taken for lunch, had two glasses of Prosecco, and realised this was about four or five in the afternoon. I hadn't eaten anything, but I'd had about eight espressos, and I had to sit down for a bit, because I <laughs> <laughs> but I made it through um, it was brilliant and I came back thinking well if I can do that off the cuff not off the cuff because I had the foundations yeah. in his work I can talk about Mike's work because I'd known it I'd worked with him you know I'd seen the process even um, and if I you know I'm good with people so I can take people around the show I've been doing that for years I remember taking Nick Sorota around the Hatton when he came to see the Mertzbahn and it was, I thought it was going to be sick. <laughs> you know, so you think, right, I can, yeah, I'm up to this. And it made, it was quite a baptism by fire though for that job. That's quite interesting. <laughs> well, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because it's about confidence. And I think that some of the other things that you've talked about, why you either said, I wasn't sure I could do it or I wasn't allowed or I didn't, you know, didn't have, feel like you had permission. Mm, yeah. So by this point, we're starting to kind of bring this stuff together and think, okay, I can do this, or, you know, were you there by that point, or...? I was getting there, definitely. Um, everyone has imposter syndrome. Everybody has it. Just some people are better at covering it than others. They, there's, there's something about um, kind of going back to this hosting thing. It's like always my fail-safe thing, but uh, being professional has its... There's rules. There are rules for behaviour. There are... Um, there's certain things in terms of good hosting and looking after people, not in a patronising way, you know, making people feel comfortable. There's a social code. There's a code of conduct, basically. Yeah. Therefore, you can't really do it that wrong. Really. So that's something I've started to click onto. I do actually know about contemporary art. That was the biggest fear. I was going to get caught out. Right. Your knowledge of yeah. contemporary art. Because I haven't art. studied it. Right. I've not, I've not got a certificate to say I know about it. That was the biggest it's thing. It's interesting, though, isn't it? And I, I knew loads about art. I'd grown up knowing about history of art, actually. Yeah. I had pretty solid history of art. art but then you've got that philosophy background, which does play, and that aesthetics plays yeah. a big, big part in understanding contemporary practice. But I didn't have it on a piece of paper. Right. So was that, has that been important <laughs> at different points for you, then, that having that formal validation? It did when I was younger, because I thought that's what you needed. Right. Because I think I'd had a very closed, you know, I'd had quite a naive entry into the art world, or mm. entry into the world, actually. I'd been, I just don't know. I, I just, 
I didn't have anyone telling me I could do it. So it felt like a bit of a rebellious thing and, you know, I should be all right, but I'll probably, I think it would be best or more sensible if I worked in an archive, actually. Yeah. You know? um, so working at maths and, again, that sort of baptism by fire meant that I could, I pretty much can do this, I think, yeah. I think I'm up to it. Because I didn't have time to think as well. Again, that's like a key thing. I've, I've sort of found myself in situations and come out of it and thought, oh, that Did was that. all right, cool. <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody does that yeah. now, don't they? It's just, as you say, people, some people cover it up. Yeah, all these tests. And yeah. uh, if you haven't got too much time to think about the test coming up, you just do it and you're fine. So every... Every lecture you give or every, you know, I did a talk last week at Camden Arts Centre and every talk I've done, I've felt more confident. It's just practice and it's the same with everything in life, really, yeah. isn't it? But that was a big turning point. Um, yeah, it was an endurance test, but it was a very good, Venice, it was a very good so experience. Matt's Gallery, you're kind of doing a bit of everything that you've talked about so far in those jobs. Yeah. Uh, and... You're also managing the space mm-hmm. at that point. So the, what the fabric of the building as well. Yeah. So there's all of this, all these different components that come together. Yeah. And how long were you at Matt's for? Four years. So slightly longer. A bit longer than there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, four years. Um, and, you know, it was a very different model for me. Well, I guess, no. Every gallery I've worked in has had a completely different business model and very different staff structure. So I've worked for institutions, but of course every institution is completely different. Yeah. Uh, I remember when I was at Cubit, there were lots of conversations at that time, towards the end of my time at Cubit, when a group called Common Practice was born out of an Arts Council project. So Matt's Gallery, Chisholm Hill, Studio Voltaire, uh, After All... Gasworks, they all joined up and started to look at research for the small-scale gallery sector, which we were all part of. Well, that's what it was referred to at that time. And there was a lot of conversations about titles. And I remember a conversation that was just happening at the time about, um, uh, well, this ongoing artist curator and, you know, these dual titles and da-da-da-da-da. In terms of the director-curator, which, again, I mentioned before, and some directors saw themselves more as a business director. So at Tate, you have a business director and yeah. you have a pro Um And there was, I don't know, so Matt's gallery was, you know, Robin is omnipotent. He's the director, he's the curator, he's the, the lifeblood, he's the soul. He's the person opening the door when you buzz. Right. Or opening the door if there's no buzz, it depends on which venue you're in. He's the one in with the artist every day till whatever time they want to go home or he gives them keys and they let themselves out. Um, he's the spokesperson, he's the face of the organisation and it's his baby. So to have gone from an artist collective to a real directorship where you've got this maverick, you know, inspiring person yeah. at the forefront of, of all of it and all creative decisions are through him. Um, so my role was very clear in that I, w- I had no part in the creative development of the work, but I was there to produce and to support on that. Um, and yeah, I took great pride in that. So without the funding, without the um, the pitch, if you like, which you would then, you know, I always say if you get a good pitch developed with an artist, you can use it equally for an application, but then it sort of births a lot of your marketing materials. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, so, so different was the, models. Was the gallery, did it have core funding? Yeah, Arts Council MPO. So MPO, yeah. and then you were topping up for each All individual perfect. show and, yeah. and getting artist fees and those kind of things, materials. Yeah. And, okay. and MPO was just basically your, that's your core framework, your running yeah. costs. That's your running costs, your rent, your staff costs, and that's it. So again, I'm, I am used to fundraising from scratch for projects. I always have, Yeah. since leaving the Hatton. I've always, 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 so I've... Um, I've never worked in an organisation with an exhibition budget, you know, an existing one. Yeah. <laughs> so for me, it's normal, but... So after four years at Matt's Gallery, yep. did you just feel that you were ready to move on? Yeah. Um, I decided I had to stop and look at what I wanted to do, because I could have worked there for the rest of my life, yeah. quite happily. But I had already done... In terms of progression, I'd done... You know, every job I've done has been a sort of surprise that I've got there at that age. You know, I, I thought I was, I did well to get to a managerial job quite early on at Cubit, for example. None of this matters, of course, but at the time it really mattered. They're important indicators, though, yeah. aren't they, to yourself? The steps. Yeah. So I started to think about what I wanted to do, and I thought maybe that was time to go back to Edinburgh or go to Glasgow. Right. Uh, I... Of, you know, I keep talking about networks, but during my time at Maths, I'd worked with lots and lots and lots and lots of organisations through all of the artists who work at Maths and others. I'd toured a lot of exhibitions. I'd worked with collections all over the country. Da, 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 da. So I wasn't really sure if there was anyone I really wanted to... This is going to sound awful. I wasn't sure if there was anyone I'd really love to work with in London. From following that experience, I wasn't really sure... Um, so a kind of mental thing where you're kind of imagining yourself working yeah. in those venues yeah. and thinking, well, what would I be able to contribute? Yeah. What could they... And where you know, I could go in those roles. Right. That was the, that was the, that next, was the big change, yeah. you see. So it's, right, I would really like a go at doing this myself. Yeah. But I'm not going to be able to do that in London. I was... I'll be very honest about this as well. I had my eye on two jobs in Edinburgh. I've been keeping my BDI... On two things, be really frank about it for friends in Edinburgh. And, um, you know, should you ever decide to leave, I'd be very interested, so do let me know. So I had that sort of, I wasn't cheating on the organisation, but I had one eye slightly up over the border. And, you know, didn't want to offend my, my lovely current employer at the time. So just, you know, if I didn't want to just wake up 10 years later and go, oh, shit, I could have actually... Yeah. That might have been a good time to switch. So I had slightly itchy feet and decided to start taking it seriously and started, um, yeah, started working on Scottish contacts because I decided I, there was no space for me in London to actually take on this role. And then I came... So I've been coming to this gallery for... I was taken here by a friend from Newcastle who I'd interviewed for my dissertation, actually, who had moved down just before me, and he brought me here to now, so the park galleries. On, I checked, I always thought it was like the first weekend, it wasn't, it was in the first month of moving down to a preview on a Sunday afternoon of Faisal Abdullah's exhibition, so that was September 2007, and got heat stroke. It was a really hot day, sat in the garden here at the gallery, saw an amazing exhibition, which was really bizarre, of local self-professed gangsters having their photos taken. They'd all been printed on gold. It was called Goldfinger. It was amazing. Pre-selfies, so there were full-on photographic opportunities happening and yeah. 
stretch hummers driving over the grass. It was insane. It was brilliant. And I thought, I don't know where the hell we are because I'd never been to Canderwater, but I like this. I like this very much. So I've been coming here as a regular visitor all this time. So when I was, again, starting to think about what I wanted to do with my life, um, I came to an event here because I've come here primarily for performance art and live art, especially at the Dilston Gallery. And I came here for a friend's birthday to see Richard Wilson and Anne Bean do a performance in pyrotechnics. And beforehand, I'd sat having a glass of wine or two with the friend whose birthday it was, saying, you know, God, I love this place, but if they just did that a bit more... That was a Saturday. The Sunday morning, my phone had beeped several times and I'd been sent by four different people this job, which had just been announced that night. So I had my list in my head ready of what needed to change yeah. to make it even better than I thought it was, because it's a very special place, this. So I applied and Ron Hennick, who was stepping down, he's not retired, he's moved on to other projects. He, you know, I produced five exhibitions here already through the Maths Gallery Partnership, which is, it tends to be an annual partnership. We just yeah. did one with Beth Collar this year. So I'd already worked in the most difficult of the two gallery spaces, apparently, because it's a concrete chute, um, not the white cube space. So I had a good knowledge of the organisation and through, at that point, what, eight years of coming regularly, I knew exactly what I would do if I had the opportunity. So all of a sudden, overnight, there was a gallery I could step into in London. So it, it was all very weird and fast yeah. again. Yeah, so did you just, <laughs> when that job came through then, did you just think, this is I'm going to stay? Is there was it. no question. I rang my mum immediately, going, right, I'm not moving, I'm not moving. She <laughs> said, oh, but I've been looking into flats. I'm like, no, I'm not, no, no, it's off, it's off. I have to do this. If I don't get this, then I'm, I'm, I'll come, not come back home, but I, I'm, I'm going to... I'll come back up north again. Yeah. But I have to go for this because I think this is the one. So at the moment, you're managing multiple sites here. Yeah. So how does that work in terms of splitting your time between those? Well, the main office is here at the Lake Gallery. We do have a small office over at Dilston, but I'm based here most of the time. Um, we programme a lot more simultaneously now across both galleries, which is all pending on funding. Um, but I'm back and forward every day. We always say we should have segways or borrow some of the gardener's buggies because I'd love one. But it keeps you fit and it's only uh, the distance of a football pitch, so it's not that far away. Um, I love being at Dilston Gallery. The phone number doesn't exist outside of the gallery as well, so it's a really quiet space. So it's right. a good place to write, actually. Right. When I'm doing applications, I like to sit over there. Um, but, yeah, I'm... I'm I feel like I'm, I'm in this office most of the time, five days a week, really. I'm, I'm trying to get out a bit more and see other work and see yeah. other shows. So I've started to work from home on Friday mornings, or Fridays, basically, to try and do more concentrated strategic work and research, which I did really well when I first joined. When I first joined, I was so good with my time. I was out every Friday afternoon seeing exhibitions. I feel like really I haven't important. seen anything I mean, for months. As you said, for... <laughs> In, in all of these jobs, the networking is tremendously mm. important, isn't it? That's yeah. got to be critical. So I'm trying to make more time to do that now because I've just been, you know, yeah. knee-deep in applications for months now um, in delivery. So, you know, exhibition programmes back up and running for longer. You know, in, this, in the winter season, we do shorter, sharp bursts of programmes. The park's locked at five o'clock, so the gallery has to shut. You know, we're not open as long in the winter. Um, 
and it's cold. We don't have heating in this space. We don't have heating in either space. So you've got to be really strategic in the winter months. So when it comes to springtime, we have much longer exhibitions. We're open longer hours. Um, so now I'm in this part of the cycle, I'll, I'll be able to do a bit more strategic work, which I am currently doing, actually. Do you find that as you get older, you find it more difficult to keep up with everything that's happening by just going to stuff all of the time? I've Does... got less energy. I have to be really honest with myself. <laughs> I used to go to, you know, anywhere you live now, it's not just, oh, in London you could see 10 things a night. You can do this actually anywhere now, I find. There's so much choice. There's so much good work out there all the time. I do, I'm trying not to work late anymore. I go through bursts where I've got a lot of writing to do. I'll, I'll work late here at the gallery hall and take it home. But I'm finding I cannot be at, I maybe get to one event a week. I used to be out every night yeah. and weekends. And I would do full gallery days on Saturdays. Now Saturdays I do my washing. <laughs> washing Saturday kitchen. <laughs> and uh, catching my breath. So being more strategic about what you yeah. go to and kind of thinking, well... But it means I miss this. a lot of things, I do. Yeah. Um, which is why I have to... Uh, you know, I've been doing this a while now, but I'm still learning how to manage my own time better. Yeah. So hence I'm trying to carve Fridays as a day where I do, you know, pretty important strategic work, which I can't do in a tiny office where the phone doesn't stop ringing. Um, and, you know, I have to be able to do that in a quiet space, but also to even finish an hour earlier on a Friday and go and see another exhibition. Because yeah. otherwise my context will shift. I'll read and I'll look at things online, but I need to be out and about actually experiencing this stuff. And we keep, you know, keep our programme as fresh as I think it is. Um, we are very lucky. I mean, anyone who works in this space is bloody lucky. Being where we are, having the artist-led history that we have, being in a park where, you know, uh, a fun nickname is Serpentine of the South. Miles Thurlow calls us that, tongue-in-cheek. But we can be a hell of a lot more experimental, I believe, than a lot of other spaces because of our situation. Yeah. So because of the communities we do serve and we say we serve our communities, we existed in the very beginning for local artists and local communities to all have equal access to art but culture itself. Because Rotherhide, there was nothing here. There's no Tate Modern. There was, no, there was nothing here. Mm. Um, it means we can be really reactive and, you know, we don't have long-term relationships with commercial galleries, for example, which a lot of non-profits have done. I think sometimes to try and support commissioning costs, which makes sense, makes perfect sense. We're doing currently a very um, historical archive, well, an exhibition responding to a vast archive of over 34 artists. And then our next exhibition is a really fun exhibitions celebrating dogs because we're in a park and we let loads of dogs in um so we can be that fluid with our taste we do a lot of performance art we do a lot of um student exhibitions as well so I don't really know where I'm going with that but it, it uh, if I sit in a vacuum much longer currently then I worry I'll start to lose a bit of context because I'm still trying to work out we we fill a void and we've had great feedback with the changes I've made to the programme, but I'm still not quite sure what that gap is we're filling. Yeah. But I want to keep filling it. So what advice would you give somebody that was interested in working in the kinds of arts organisations that you've been working in? 
it is a completely different landscape now. That's and because I always used to say, well, I still believe the it's contentious because as an organisation we, you know, um, we don't have any voluntary staff. We don't do free placements. We do subsidised placements with, you know, when they've been subsidised by Sotheby's, for example, we've got a relationship with them. But the voluntary experience I did was essential to me doing any of this yeah. and taught me so much at a really pivotal time in my life. Um, I don't agree with free labour. I'm trying to pay artists in everything I do where budgets permit. Um, I believe everyone should be paid or reimbursed or supplemented in some way for the time and expertise they brought to something. So currently it's much, uh, quite rightly, um, voluntary labour is discouraged, quite rightly. So I'm try I keep trying to talk to um, our invigilator team as well about this, about op opportunities for people trying to get into gallery work. And I think it has to be not just um, spray gunning your CV to all and sundry. It's about, I'll say the same to an artist actually, about which gallery would you like to show with? It would be the same as which gallery would you like to work with or how would you like to get into that particular bit of the sector? If you start thinking about where you regularly go, if you were to write down the three galleries or three spaces you go to and feel at home at, which family would you like to join, basically, and think about, you know, do they offer any form of professional development placement? So, so if it's Matt's Gallery, would you apply for the Stanley Picker Awards so you could work on a bursary for six months to hone your skills, hone your trade, if you like? Or does your university that you're currently at or used to be at as an alumni have any form of professional development or um, access training or opportunities like that? Because there are things in place, but, uh, I mean, they're very competitive, that's the problem. Um, but I would really, I've, good advice I often find is to sit and write down all of the people you've ever met. <laughs> so if you've just come out of uni, who were the guest lecturers, who were the visiting lecturers, who did your tutorials, who did your group crits, um, which visits were you taken on, you know, during that period. So I do this when I've, you know, um, when friends have resigned from jobs, we, the first thing we do is we sit and we write down every damn person we've met. Who was your printer? Who, yeah. who was the caterer for that event? You write down all of these people and you start circling or targeting the people that you really learnt a lot from, you really respected, you'd love to spend more time with. You'd love to go and ask their advice how to get into this, that and the other. Because I've... I think because I'm, I'm quite an open person... I do actually seek advice quite a lot. And as I'm getting older, I'm getting much better at it all the more. And I'm encouraging other people to get mentors or go and have a cup of tea once a quarter with somebody who's inspirational to you or um, you'd like to learn more about how they've got to where they are or how they seem to... You know, Sarah Munro um, did two coaching sessions with me which were absolutely brilliant not long after I joined this organisation. When I was looking at a restructure, I wanted to ask her tangible things. You know, she had not long been at Baltic and come in and I didn't know what her plans were and I still, I, you know, I didn't pry that. I just asked her as someone I've always respected who's worked at some of my favourite spaces in the country. If you were me, how would you approach this issue I have right now? And I'm thinking this is a good thing, but is this... Da -da -da. Yeah. So, mentors are brilliant. 
you don't need to just have a formal, you don't have to find a formal relationship either. It's about looking at who you, you think, oh, well, I don't know anybody and I've got no contacts and I've got no network. Everybody has a network. Everyone has a network. It's, you know, I think I probably asked you for advice when I was first leaving and years after that. I was asking my other colleagues from Manhattan for advice. Even on, you know, very seemingly straightforward issues that I was having in terms of my professional career or in terms of how you manage your time or whatever. Um, so yeah, I would always write a list first and look at the links and connections you have definitely made in your life um, through uni, through um, college or through any job opportunities you've had. And then just start speaking to people. That's always helped me. That's all of my questions. Cool. Thank you very much for your time, Judith. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud and Facebook using the handle Cultural Peeps. And if you want a bit more information about the Careers Pathway project, or about any of the conversations or participants, then there's a project blog which is available at culturalpeeps.wordpress.com.